The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. Well, last night we talked about, if you missed, uh, the first four facets of the five facets of the kingdom, and that first facet, uh, the universal or eternal kingdom, and that was God ruling over his creation. And then um, the spiritual kingdom, the second facet, and folks don't shy away from that. I know the amillennialists, that's all they want to talk about is the spiritual kingdom. And I would say to them, look, we, you know, I agree with you. There is a, the, a spiritual facet that's part of God's kingdom program. But the amillennials still say, you know, that's all there is to God's kingdom program. And I say, no, wait a minute, there's other facets. Uh, there's also the theocratic kingdom, God ruling over Israel, and then the messianic kingdom, where Jesus is going to return, he's going to set up his kingdom, he's going to rule and reign uh, on this earth. But there are some scriptures that we looked at last night, Luke 17, where Jesus said, you're not going to see the kingdom. Well, that just does not fit with the messianic kingdom. And the spiritual, that fits, you know, with, with the spiritual uh, facet of God's kingdom program. And then tonight, um, <clears throat> we want to finish up uh, then with the mystery kingdom. Now, there are eight different mysteries in the New Testament. And uh, there is the mystery of the seven lampstands in Revelation 1. There's the mystery of the body, uh, the body of Christ in Ephesians 3. There's the mystery of the indwelling Christ. The mystery of the church is the bride of Christ. Uh, the rapture, the, the translation of the saints is referred to as a mystery. But what is a mystery in the New Testament? It is not a whodunit type thing. You know, it's not a Sherlock Holmes Uh, The New Testament definition of a mystery is very simple. It's a new teaching found in the New Testament that is not found uh, in the Old Testament. And if you look these passages up, uh, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, 26, uh, that will kind of give you the definition of a mystery and the way the word is used uh, in the New Testament. Now, the mystery kingdom begins in Matthew chapter 13. I invite you to turn through your Bible to Matthew, and we actually want to start in chapter 12, because the mystery kingdom begins with the rejection of Jesus in Matthew 12, and then in Jesus and his teaching in Matthew 13, and it ends at the second coming of Christ, and we're going to see that as we look at the parables of the mystery kingdom. But very important, what you understand is that the mystery kingdom includes all of Christendom. Okay, and so by Christendom, we mean everyone who claims to be a Christian, whether they really are a Christian or not. All right, so there's probably over a billion people in the world today. I don't know, I've heard you know, different numbers, anywhere from one to two billion people in the world today who claim to be Christians. And they are all part of what we would call Christendom. Now, are they all Christians? No. They're not all true believers in Christ. Now, true Christians are also part of Christendom. But, for example, uh, Mormons are part of Christendom because they, while they claim to be Christians, you know, they're not Christians, but they claim to be, they're under the umbrella of Christendom. Uh, Roman Catholics, Jehovah Witnesses, you know, anyone who claims the name of Christ, whether a believer or not, they fall under Christendom. So it includes believers and unbelievers 
who, who claim uh, the name of, of Jesus, or at least claim to b- belong uh, to Christ. But it begins with the rejection of Jesus in Matthew 12. And let's look at Matthew 12, verse 22. There was brought in him unto Jesus one possessed with a demon, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? Now, when they ask this question, Is not this the son of David? What are they really asking there? They're really asking, Hey, couldn't this guy be the Messiah? I mean, the Messiah had to be from the line of David. They all knew that Jesus was from the line of David. So what they're really asking is, Wow, this guy, he just did this, this great miracle couldn't he be the Messiah? And by the way, there were three, uh, the, the rabbis uh, taught that there were three different miracles that only the Messiah could do. And one of those miracles was healing a man or a person who had leprosy. And interesting that uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, you have two whole chapters about uh, leprosy and what to do when someone is cured of leprosy. Leviticus 13 and 14. But as you read through the Old Testament, there is not one record of a Jewish leper ever being healed of leprosy. Okay, Nahum was healed, but he wasn't Jewish. And so the rabbis developed a teaching over the years. You're not going to find this in the Bible, but in the rabbinic literature, a teaching developed that when the Messiah came, and only when the Messiah came, would lepers be healed. And what is one of the first miracles that Jesus does? Matthew 8, he heals a leper. At the beginning of of his ministry, he heals a man with leprosy. At the end of his ministry, he heals ten people who had leprosy. And once this guy was healed of leprosy, there's a whole ceremony they had to go, a whole ritual where they had to go up to the temple. They had to present themselves to the priest, and there were special sacrifices that had to be done and uh, different things that they would do to him. And so as Jesus starts out his ministry, he heals a leper, and it would have been a great uh, witness, a testimony that the Messiah has come, because the rabbis were teaching, hey, it's only, these guys are only going to heal when the Messiah comes. The second miracle, Messianic miracle was healing a man uh, born blind, and Jesus did that one. And the third was uh, casting a demon out of a man who was dumb and deaf. And Jesus does that one here. But what do the Pharisees say? Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So the Pharisees uh, said, No, he's not the Messiah. And then Jesus goes on to give four reasons why he uh, is uh, the Messiah, and that uh, this miracle he has done is from God and not from Satan. But at this point, it becomes clear. This, this really marks a turning point in the ministry of Jesus because it becomes clear to him that the nation as a whole is going to reject him. And why is because the people always follow, you know, the sheep always follow the shepherd. And the rabbis are the shepherds of the people. And so it becomes clear to Jesus here that he is going to be rejected. Uh, He is not going to be accepted as the Messiah. And he begins to change his ministry and I'll tell you two ways he changed it is um, the way he heals. Okay, before his rejection, he is healing in mass. After his rejection, you'll notice that faith is now required for someone to be healed. If you know, the, the blind men are calling out, Lord, heal us. And he says, if you have faith, I can do it. Because 
before his rejection, he's calling to the nation as a whole to receive him. Once it is clear the nation is going to reject him, he is now not talking to the nation as a whole. He's now talking to individuals within the nation. And he's saying, look, I know the nation as a whole is going to reject me, but you as an individual, you can still personally receive me as your Messiah. And, and so that way his ministry change, changes, but his teaching ministry also changes. And let's look in Matthew 13, right after uh, this. In fact, on the very same day, Matthew 13, the same day when Jesus out of the house sat by the seaside and he gives a parable. And then look at verse 10. The disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? So up until this point, he had not been speaking in parables. After his rejection, he now begins to speak and teach in parables. Now, a parable is an analogy from everyday life to teach an ethical, moral, or spiritual truth. An analogy or a story from everyday life to teach an ethical, moral, or spiritual truth And there's three reasons why Jesus spoke in parables. Number one, to conceal truth from unbelievers. Number two, to to reveal truth to believers. And number three is to fulfill prophecy. Psalm 78, 2, and Matthew brings that out in verse 11, Matthew 13, 11. Um, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And uh, let's see, that's... uh, not the verse I was looking for, but it is, uh, he does quote uh, Psalm 78.2, and so he is fulfilling this, this prophecy. Now, in the first parable, he tells about the parable of the sower in the soils, and you know the story is that uh, as the um, fowls come, you know, the seed is sown, and some of it falls on the wayside, and the fowls, the birds came and devoured it, and some fell on the stony places, and uh, some, you know, it sprang up, but because they had no deepness of earth, 13.5, when the sun came up, it was scorched. Some fell on the thorns, verse 7, but some did produce fruit. And so what he's saying here is that the mystery kingdom will be characterized by a sowing of the seed, and the seed will be received and grow in some areas, but it will um, not be received and uh, rejected in other areas. The next parable is in Matthew 4. We won't take time to look at that, but basically Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark 4 is talking about the quick growth of uh, the gospel and expansion of uh, the seed and the gospel. And then the third of the nine parables of the mystery kingdom is in Matthew thirteen twenty four. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the blade sprung up, brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. The servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? From whence, uh, from where then hath it tares? And he said to them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said to him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? He said to him, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And that's the end of the tribulation. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather first the tares, bind them into bundles, and burn them, but gather the wheat into my gar- barn." So this parable illustrates the counterfeit sowing of the gospel that will uh, take place throughout the mystery kingdom. And um, 
If you've ever seen wheat in a tear, you know, you go through a wheat field and you'll see stalks of wheat growing up and then you'll see tares, which are weeds, they look almost identical. But one is good and healthy and you can eat it and tastes good, it's, it's wheat, and the other is just a weed. Well, it's the same today. We have real Christians, which represent the wheat, and the tares are the counterfeit Christians. And just as the, the tares look like wheat, so counterfeit Christians, they might look like a Christian, they might go to church, they might wear a cross around their neck, uh, they might talk like a Christian, but it's not a true Christian. And so um, I think it's very important to understand that uh, now in this age and in this mystery kingdom, there's going to be true Christians and counterfeit Christians. And I think this is important to bring out in our witnessing as well. To, so people can understand the difference between the true and the false, the true and the counterfeit. And um, I'm, I'm telling this to Jewish people all the time because um, Jewish people think that everyone who claims the name of Christ is, is really a true Christian. And in fact, um, I can tell you when, when Jewish people think of Christianity, guess what the first thing they think of? Roman Catholicism. And I like to, you know, to tell them, look, uh, Roman Catholicism, that is not true Christianity. That is counterfeit Christianity. And uh, they look at how uh, Roman Catholicism, you know, they have been persecuted in the name of Jesus over the years. They look at the, the Crusades where the, the Roman Catholics went on these you know, Crusades to the Middle East and uh, massacred and slaughtered. Uh, wiped out whole Jewish villages in the name of Jesus. They, you know, Jewish people were called Christ killers. And um, even some Gentiles, non-Jews, uh, for example, Richard Dawkins, uh, I had a slide of him last night. Uh, he's uh, an atheist and really a, an, an aggressive atheist and really pushing atheism. And as I learned about his life, he grew up in a Roman Catholic family and went, attended a Roman Catholic church and, but he saw all the hypocrisy there, and the, this, he saw this for what it was, a false religion. And when he got older, he said, you know, if that's Christianity, I don't want any part of it. And turned to, you know, went over completely over to atheism. And so I think it's very important to point out to people today that, hey, there is true Christianity, but there's also counterfeit Christianity. Satan has his counterfeit. And so that's what this uh, parable is very beautifully teaching, the difference between the true and false, and that Satan is, has sown his counterfeit. In the next parable, in verse 31, uh, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which, in, which indeed is the least of all seeds. When it's grown, it's the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree. The birds of the air come and lodge in the branches of it. Now, um, <clears throat> this parable explains how the church starts out small, but it grows very big. And if you've ever seen a mustard seed, it is a very, very tiny seed. Although it's not the smallest seed in the world, it is the smallest seed in Israel. It would have been the smallest seed in Israel at the time Jesus is teaching this parable. And certainly the church did start out very small. I mean, what do you got? The 12 disciples, and look at today, you know, a couple billion people in the world who are under the the umbrella of Christendom. But notice he says that the birds of the air come and lodge it in, in it. And as you'll read different commentators on the parables, you'll find uh, different ideas in what the birds represent. 
I think uh, as in the first parable where uh, the birds came and snatched up the seed, and so the birds were, they were bad, they were from the enemy. To keep a consistent interpretation, it appears to me that the birds here in this parable would also be bad. And so they could represent uh, possibly uh, cults. Cults come and they lodge in the tree of Christianity, and uh, they're not true Christians, but they're uh, under the umbrella of Christendom, and they're lodging in the tree of Christianity. The next parable, the parable of the leaven in verse 33, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leaven. And all these things uh, Jesus spoke unto the multitude in a parable. And without a parable spoke he unto them. Here's the verse I was looking for, all right? Verse 35, here's where he quotes Psalm 78, 2, I will open my mouth in parables and other things which have, not, which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So this uh, next parable illustrates corruption in the mystery kingdom. And just as you have three measures of meal, uh, you have three main branches of Christendom. All right, you have uh, Roman Catholicism, you have Eastern Orthodoxy, and you have Protestants. And with, within each of those three branches, there is leaven. And what is leaven in Scripture? Leaven is sin, and it could represent false teaching. So within the Protestant movement, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Roman Catholicism, you have varying degrees of leaven and false teaching. In the next parable, the parable of the hidden treasure in verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man finds, he hideth for joy, goeth and selleth all he hath, and buyeth the field. This parable illustrates how the Messiah Jesus, he gave everything he had to redeem Israel. In um, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, Israel is called God's peculiar treasure. And here is this man finds the treasure and he sold, he gave everything he had to buy this field to get this treasure. It represents how Jesus gave everything he had to redeem Israel. The next parable, the parable of the pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking fine pearls. When he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. Now in the Bible, when the sea is used symbolically, typically speaks of the Gentiles and the nations. Pearls come from the sea. And so, generally, this is interpreted that uh, just that Jesus gave everything he had in this parable to redeem the Gentiles, the Goyim, the non-Jews. So, in one, he gave everything to redeem Israel. He gave, then, uh, the next parable, everything he uh, had to redeem the Gentiles. In the next parable, the parable of the dragnet, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, which cast into sea and gathered every kind. When it was full, they drew to shore, sat down, gathered the good into vessels and cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the age, the angels shall come forth and separate the wicked from among the righteous, cast them into the furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So at the end of the mystery kingdom, at the second coming of Christ, uh, there is a judgment, and the good are separated from the bad. It's similar to what uh, Jesus said in uh, Matthew 25, when he returns, he separates the sheep from the goats at that judgment. And that's how the mystery kingdom will end at the second coming of Christ, and it will end with a judgment. And then the final parable of the mystery kingdom 
In uh, verse 52, he said unto them, Therefore, every scribe who is instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a man that is an householder who bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And what he's saying here in this parable is that some things in the mystery kingdom are going to be new. They're unique to the mystery kingdom. And other things are going to be old or similar to other facets of God's kingdom program. Flip over then now to Revelation and chapter 2 and 3. And we'll see... Whereas, remember, in the mystery kingdom, is talking about Christendom as a whole, and within Christendom there are true believers, and there are counterfeit believers. And we see this in Jesus and his message to the churches, and the church at Thyatira is the counterfeit church. Thyatira literally means... Continual sacrifice, and this is really a good description here of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholics believe that every time they partake of Mass, they are continually, they are re-sacrificing the body of Jesus. And in verse 20, he says that they are following the teaching of Jezebel. Well, Jezebel is the one who set up idol worship in ancient Israel. And it was the Roman Catholics who set up idol worship, the worship of saints, the worship of Mary, and all these icons uh, in the church. And Jesus tells this church in verse 21 to repent of her fornication. What fornication? Their false teaching, their false doctrine. So you know, why would he tell them to repent if they're doing something good? You know, they're, not, they're not doing something right. They're, this is the false church, the counterfeit church. And he says, um, if they don't repent, verse 22, I will cast her into a bed and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Now, folks, understand that these churches here, these seven churches were not just chosen arbitrarily. They uh, represent seven types of churches that can be found throughout church age, the, the church age and even today. All right, uh, there are Thyatira-type churches today. That was primarily the Roman Catholic Church. There are Philadelphia-type churches today. Those are churches that are really teaching and preaching the Word of God, mission-minded churches. There are Sardis-type churches today. And so <clears throat> this church, this Thyatira church, he, Jesus says to them, unless they repent, they are going to go into the tribulation period. So this is the counterfeit church. While the church, true church is raptured before the tribulation, This counterfeit church goes into the tribulation because uh, they do not have true faith in Christ. They are part of Christendom, but they are not part of Christ. Now, in Revelation, um, we'll look also in um, uh, verse 24. I say unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, so the people in that church who are not following this this, uh, false doctrine, And notice what he says, and have not known the depths of Satan. This church is teaching the depths of Satan. And so it is is a counterfeit. It's professing but not possessing. But then in Revelation 3.10, he says to the church at Philadelphia, because you've kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation 
which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. This is the true church within Christendom. They are going to be kept, ek, the Greek word, out of the tribulation period. They're going to be raptured prior to the start of the tribulation period, and um, they'll be saved from that time. So um, these are the five facets of uh, God's kingdom program. And uh, I hope this has uh, given you a, a better understanding, maybe a little more insight into some of these passages and to these scriptures and something for you to chew on this week and maybe do a little more further study uh, as you go home.